The Fireman, Part Two, of Careers of Danger and Daring. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat. The Fireman, Part Two. What Bill Brown Did in the Great Tarrant Fire The great test for Fire Engine 29 and her crew, the test of life or death that firemen wait years for, to see what stuff is in them, came of a mild autumn afternoon, not soon to be forgotten by men who lunch down City Hallway, by men who swarm in the stone hives of Chamber Street and Greenwich Street and Washington Street. This is the day when innocent, wholesome, chlorate of potash, excellent for colds, showed what it can do when you take it by the ton with a pinch of fire. This was the day of the great explosions, when it rained red-hot stones and blazing timbers, when whole blocks of lower Manhattan shivered with the concussion. This was Terence Day, October 29, 1900. It all started smoothly enough, with brass gongs tapping out deliberate 62s, at which the big horses in most engine houses stamped their displeasure, for 62 meant nothing to them, at least not on the first call. But it was the great business for Harry and Nigger and Baby, the two blacks and gray that pulled old twenty-nine, and there they were, at the first tap, breasting the rubber-bound stall chains as if to hurry up laggard electricity, which presently shot its sparks and loosened their fastenings. Now, drop down the stall chains and the horses pounding over the tiles, crowd up three breast ahead of the engines, down drop the crew, silently, swiftly sliding from ceiling to floor like so many blue-shirted ghosts. And click-click, its traces up, and its collars off the frames, and snap-snap until the last hooks hold. Hmm, says Baby, as the thick wheels start. Six seconds. Might have been worse. We'll strike the curb in eight and a half, snorts Nigger. As the doors swing wide, they bang into Chamber Street. Out into Chamber Street they go with Johnny Marks driving and Bill Brown jamming blazing waste into her firebox, where wood and oil do the rest. On the black steps rides Captain Devaney, steadying himself by the coal-box, scowling under his helmet and jerking fast on the alarm cord as they swing on to Greenwich Street. There is the fire just ahead, corner of Warren Street, nasty black smoke choking back the crowd, and here comes the hose-wagon, clanging and rumbling at their heels. It's first water for us, Bill, says Devaney. There's drugs and stuff in there, says Bill. They fell to work, as firemen do. When the first explosions came, said Captain Devaney, telling the story weeks afterwards, I was inside the building, up one flight at the bottom of a well of fire. MacArthur and Buckley were with me, playing a stiff stream to protect the back windows. There's where people in the building had to run men and girls. We could see them crowding on the balconies over Bishop's Alley, and we wanted to give them a chance on the fire escapes. You see, a red-hot ladder isn't much use to anybody. Well, they got down, every soul of them, 
but by that time big chunks of fire were dropping all around us, and our helmets were crumpling and our clothes were burning. Besides that, we kept hearing little explosions overhead, louder than the firecracker, louder than pistol shots, and when you hear those in a drug house, you don't feel any too good. I went to the front and saw fire breaking out everywhere on the fourth and fifth floors. Then I knew it was all up, and ran back to order the boys out. On the stairs I met Gillen, and he was just yelling, Save yourselves! When the crash came, it was like a cannon, sir, and sounded buzz in my ears for a long time. As I lay in the wreck with tongues of blue flame looking down over me, I'd been blown clean off the second-floor landing and dropped in the hallway, twenty feet back from the door. MacArthur and Gillen were down the elevator shaft, where they jumped. Nobody dared lift a head, for the cyclone of fire was all over us. It's not my purpose to detail the suffering and final rescue of these flame-bound men. They had some vivid glimpses of death and some cruel burns, but firemen count these nothing, nor is MacArthur's act in turning back through the fire to save a fallen comrade, Marin, more than ordinary fireman's pluck nor is Devaney's experience, when caught in the second explosion and blown through a shop on Washington Street, more than an ordinary hazard of the business. Indeed, this Tarrant fire should have been little of my attention, were there not something in it beyond noise and house-smashing. There was this thing in it, overlooked by newspaper reports, yet vastly important, the behavior of Bill Brown to whom, as a representative, one may say, of the engine crew 29, came the greatest test I spoke of, the rare test which nothing but the highest courage can satisfy. All firemen have courage, but it cannot be known until the test. How many have this particular kind? Bill Brown's kind. And the odd part of it is that what he did seems a little thing, and it took only a minute to do. It saved no life, and made no difference whatever in the outcome of the fire. Yet to the few who know, or care, it stands in the memories of the department as a fine and unusual bit of heroism. What happened was this. Engine 29, pumping and pounding her prettiest, stood at the northwest corner of Greenwich and Warren Streets, so close to the blazing drug-house that driver Marks thought it wasn't safe there for the three horses, and led them away. That was fortunate. But it left Brown alone, right against the cheek of the fire, watching his boiler, stoking his coal, keeping his steam-gauge at seventy-five. As the fire gained chunks of red-hot sandstone began to smash down on the engine, Brown ran his pressure up to eighty, and watched the door anxiously where the boys had gone in. Then the explosion came, and a blue flame, white as a house, curled its tongues halfway across the street, enwrapping the engine and the man, setting fire to the elevated railway section overhead. Or such wreck of it as the shock had left, Bill Brown stood by his engine, with a wall of fire before him and a sheet of fire above him, his quick footsteps on the pavements and voices that grew fainter and fainter, crying, "'Run for your lives!' He heard the hoist-wagon horses somewhere back in the smoke go plunging away, mad with fright and their burns. He was alone with the fire, and the skin was hanging in shreds on his hands, face, and neck. 
Only a fireman knows how one blast of flame can shrivel up a man, and the pain over the bared surfaces was, well, there is no pain worse than that of fire scorching in upon the quick flesh seared by fire. Here, I think, was a crisis to make a very brave man quail. Bill Brown knew perfectly well why every one was running. There was going to be another explosion in a couple of minutes, maybe sooner out of this hell in front of him, and the order had come for every man to save himself, and every man had done it except the lads inside. And the question was, should he run, or should he stay and die? It was tolerably certain that he would die if he stayed. On the other hand, the boys of old twenty-nine were in there, Devaney and MacArthur and Gillen and Merrin, his friends, his chums. He'd seen them drag the hose in through that door. There it was now, a long, throbbing snake of it, and they hadn't come out. Perhaps they were dead. Yes, but perhaps they weren't. If they were alive, they needed water now more than they ever needed it anything before, and they couldn't get water if he quit his engine. Bill Brown pondered this a long time, perhaps four seconds. Then he fell to stoking in coal, and he screwed her up another notch, and he eased her running parts with the oiler. Explosion or not, pain or not, alone or not, he was going to stay and make that engine hum. He had done the greatest thing a man can do, had offered his life for his friends. It is pleasant to know that this sacrifice was averted. A quarter of a minute or so before the second and terrible explosion, Devaney and his men came staggering from the building. Then it was that Marin fell, and MacArthur checked his flight to save him. Then it was, but not until then, that Bill Brown left Engine 29 to her fate. She was crushed by the falling walls, and ran for his life with his comrades. He had waited for them. He had stood the great test. It were easy to multiply stories of firemen, stories of the captains, stories of the chiefs. There is no end to them. However many may be told or written, they are but fragments of fragments. New York has 136 engine companies, 41 hook-and-ladder companies, besides the volunteers on Staten Island, and there is not one of these but has its proud record of courage and self-sacrifice. Other lives show bravery for gain, bravery for show, bravery for sport. These show bravery for the public good, and for no other reason. Unselfish bravery. Think what the firemen do. They give up regular sleep. They give up home life. They bear every exposure. They face death in many forms as a matter of daily routine. They never refuse an order. Lead where it may. Such a case is practically unknown. And they do all this for modest pay and scant glory. Three or four dollars a day will cover their earnings. And as for the glory, what is it? For some, a medal, a tattered paper with a roll of honor mention, a picture in the newspapers. For most of them, nothing. Yet they are cheerful, happy men. Why? I have wondered about this. Shall we think of firemen as braver than other men, as finer or more devoted? 
no, and yes. I should say that most of them, to start with, had no such superiority, but came into the apartment, usually by opportunity or drift, out of unpromising conditions, came in quite as selfish and timorous, quite as human as the ordinary citizens. And the life did the rest. The life changed them, made them braver and better. Why? Because it is a brave, unselfish life, and no man can resist it. Put a convict in the fire department, and he will become an honest man. Or leave. It's like changing scamps into heroes on the battlefield. Only these battles of hose and axe are all the righteous battles to save lives, to avert loss and suffering. In the whole business of fighting fires, there is no place for a mean or base motive, and can be none. Therefore, meanness and baseness go out of fashion, just as whining goes out of fashion on a football team. It's the fashion among firemen to do fine things. Let me give a further instance of what this fire department fashion does for men at the very top. For battalion chiefs and deputy chiefs and the chief himself. It swings them into line, like men in the ranks. With the chance to work less, they find themselves working harder. With orders to take from no one, they assume voluntarily a severer duty than any man would put upon them. And this, even if power has come through the way of politics, through influence or scheming. Let the most spoils-soaked veteran become chief of a city fire department, and I believe we should see him, in spite of himself, forgetting his pocket-stuffing principles and seeking the heroic goal, though it kill him. Which it probably would. As a matter of fact, New York has never had a chief who did not work harder than his men and spare himself less than he spared his men. Take our present chief. Edward F. Croker, the youngest man who ever held this place. Let me run over his twenty-four hours, from eight in the evening, when he goes on night duty at the Great Jones Street Engine House. From now until daylight, he will cover personally some two hundred stations on the first alarm. That is, everything from Twenty-Third Street to the Battery, region of greatest danger, and on the second or third alarm he will cover the whole of Manhattan Island. That means answering every night from two to a dozen calls scattered over a great area. It means a pair of horses, Dan and John usually, and a driver clean worn out when morning comes. It means to the chief, besides physical fatigue, an exhausting responsibility in quickly judging each fire and outlining the way of fighting it. Almost a day's work, this one would say, but it is only a beginning. However broken his rest, the chief is up at seven in the morning. And note that what sleep he gets, three, four, five hours, is at an engine house, not at his home. And by nine he is at headquarters, in 67th Street, ready for a hard morning transacting business for the department doing as much work as a merchant in his counting-room. This until one o'clock. Then no luncheon. All fire chiefs are two-meal men. But off for a four-hour spin behind Kitty and Bell, his daylight team, driving from station to station for the work of inspection, 
holding the reins himself for arm exercise, seeing with his own eyes how the work is going, holding every man to his duty, studying the city, too, as he goes about, noting its growth and changes from the viewpoint of a fire expert, detecting weak points, bad streets, defective structures, fixing in mind the danger spots, here oil, there lumber, yonder paint or chemicals, and always planning for the defense. After this inspection tour comes the only time in the day when the chief is not on duty, an hour and a half or two hours when he gets a glimpse of his family and eats his dinner. Even then the fire buggy waits outside. End of section two. Recording by Kirby Bonds.